Sure, who are we to argue with taller Ghost Walt? That's right, it's season four of Lost. Welcome to Tessa Watches Lost, Monkey Off My Backlog, second weekly podcast where one of us reacts to a TV show that the other has forced us to watch. I'm your host, Sam, and with me is Tessa. You know, these episodes were remarkably short of affection, so why don't you just say hello? Hello! Hi! This week, we're talking about the first two episodes of Season 4, The Beginning of the End, and Confirmed Dead. These episodes serve as a soft reboot for the series, with some drastic changes to the group dynamic, an introduction to some new main characters. Speaking of confirmed dead, all that poor citrus, Tessa. It's really just a shame. I mean, consider the supply chain issues alone. Funny how in the good old days we didn't consider supply chain issues. We would just run over fruit all willy-nilly without any regard whatsoever. The beginning of the end tells us, we think, that we know four of the Oceanic Six, Jack, Kate, Hurley, and Sawyer. However, only Jack and Hurley are confirmed. We don't even know if Kate is one of the Oceanic Six. No, we do. She was in the last episode. So? I guess she could have snuck back. Exactly. Fugitive, wanted for murder, Kate might have snuck back. Just goes to show that you never know with this show. You do never know, all the way up until the end. Are they dead or are they not dead? Which foreshadows a segment we're going to play later in this episode. Dead or not dead? Yes. Now <laughs> now that we are, as I said, we've, we've, we've done a soft reboot. In the second half of the series, a lot of the key questions begin to change. And one of the big complaints is, as the key questions begin to change, some of the key questions from the first three seasons, are just never answered. It's interesting that we talk about how this episode is called The Beginning of the End, which is a reference to something Ben says in relation to the ship and the people who are coming for him, as it turns out. I just think it's fascinating that this show is telling us, in no uncertain terms, we know where we're going now. We didn't know before, we kind of knew at the beginning, and then we kind of waffled around in season two, trying to figure it out, and then we made some moves in season three, but now we know where we are going. This That's is the right. beginning of the end. That's right. Because, of course, they know where they're going now, this episode occurs before the flash forwards that we saw in the previous episode through the looking glass. Though Jack is clearly not doing well, it's Hurley who's freaking out in this episode. What do you make of what's going on in this flash forward? Yeah, we can tell. We only see Jack twice in this episode. We're gonna t- we can tell he's not doing well because he is drinking. We see him put the vodka in his orange juice, but he hasn't grown out his beard. He hasn't quite gotten to that level that we saw in Through the Looking Glass yet. But Hurley, like you said, is freaking out because, as it turns out, he's seeing Charlie. He sees dead people. He sees dead people. And, of course, I would freak out, too. It is really affecting to hear him beg, basically, to be institutionalized, considering his history with institutionalization. We also get, of course, a little bit of, I guess, maybe context. Because, yeah, he does mention that he's one of the Oceanic Six, so we know that six people made it off the island. 
He gets confronted by a mysterious person with no business cards who says that they're from the airline but are clearly not. He asks Hurley if they're still alive. I assume that means everybody else that was on the island. So we get a little bit more of a mystery, right? Like, why did they hide all these people on the island? Why is it only six of them that were rescued? Why did any of them get rescued? So, you know, there's a lot of questions being asked, but they're really interesting questions. So, yeah, it does actually seem like this flash forward. It's not just treading water. This is not the Jack's tattoo episode of Lost where they're just kind of killing time in the flashbacks. Like we're actually going somewhere now. So you mentioned a couple of things here. You mentioned Matthew Abaddon, the oceanic employee who is probably not, played by J.J. Abrams' regular Lance Reddick, whom a lot of people know from multiple video games as well as Fringe. And John Wick. Yes. His last name is Abaddon? Yes. I didn't catch that. That's a biblical reference. He's the devil. Well, well, well. We also have another familiar face. We have Mike Walton, who was Ana Lucia's partner. And this doesn't work just as an Easter egg, just as a cute little thing. Hurley denies knowing Ana Lucia. Why? Why would he do that? Yeah, there's a lot of questions that I have about, again, why is it the six of them, whoever the six are, like you said, we only maybe know a couple of them at this point. We can maybe have some guesses as to some other people. But it's also like, what is the story that they told? Like, why why does it matter that Hurley never met Ana Lucia? Are they trying to say everyone died in the plane crash except for the six of them? I think there are a lot of questions here. Also, Hurley does not deserve this. I need to just throw that out there. Hurley has been through a lot. He doesn't deserve this. At the beginning of the episode, he tells Bernard that he won the lottery and he has, you know, over $100 million and it was the worst thing that happened to him and he couldn't wait to be free. And Bernard's like, yeah, that must be terrible. So previously on Lost, the only time that we see dead people, as in like ghosts, not really there, people, are on the island. We've seen Christian Shepherd. We've seen, uh, we've seen one of Hurley's uh, institution mates. We've seen Mr. Echo saw his brother. But his brother was actually there. But so was Christian Shepherd. But they were both dead. This is the first time we have a sighting of a dead person off the island. It might be a little bit obvious, but why Charlie? So I don't actually think it's Charlie. I think it is the island. I have a lot of theories about the island that I talked about during our last season of Tessa Watches Lost. And I think some of them have been confirmed a little bit or at least have been supported. I guess confirmed is a very strong word for this show. And would you like to say what that is? Well, so I think the island wants something from them. I think it's trying to communicate with them and it's doing it in the only ways that it knows how, which are through, like you said, ghosts or visions of dead people, through the smoke monster, through other things, through through the cabin that we're going to talk about, I'm sure, through Jacob. Locke desperately wants to be the person that that the island communicates with. I'm not entirely sure 
that he is in this episode. I'm not sure that we get that confirmed. I think the island tries to communicate with Ben, but Ben uses the power of the island or uses the mystique of the island to control other people. He's not actually doing what the island wants because then he wouldn't be needed anymore. So I think that the island wants Hurley specifically because of other things that happen in this episode to come back to the island to fulfill whatever it is that the island wants. But it also wants the other five people to come back as well. Hurley tells Jack at the end of the episode, it's going to keep trying to bring us back. It's going to do everything it can to get us to come back. And there was one other key thing that he told Jack while they were having their conversation, while they were playing horse, which we'll come back to in a minute. Oh, yeah. Hurley also apologizes for splitting the group and for going with John Locke, which I have to say, this episode for me really confirmed that Hurley is actually the leader of this group. We had this conversation so many times during the last season of Tessa Watches Lost. Is Jack the leader? Is Sawyer the leader? Is Saeed the leader? I actually think Hurley is the emotional core of this group. But more importantly, I think he actually does make decisions for this group. He just doesn't wear the title. He gets other people to realize the things that they need to realize in order to lead the group. But as soon as Charlie dies, he starts making decisions, you'll notice. He keeps saying things like, you know, no, we we have to make sure that Charlie's death meant something. He even tells Sawyer what to do at one point. And he's the one who, in an earlier episode, told Sawyer that he was the leader of the group. So... For me, I think this is a really interesting exploration of what it means to be Hurley in this group and also Hurley's influence over the other characters because he takes a significant number of them with him. So I want to keep going with that and come back to the island. But really quick before we leave, a little lost numerology for you. They play horse and they get as far as H and O. H is the eighth letter of the alphabet, and O is the 15th letter. 815. Anyway. Why? The other thing about this episode is outside of the flash forward, this episode, it picks up right where the last one left off, and there are a lot of loose ends to deal with. You know, this episode kind of closes up a lot of things from the season finale. It doesn't move the plot forward a lot so much as it allows the plot to be moved forward, which begins to happen in the next episode. So the loose ends that we have to tie up, staying with Hurley, as you said, we have the not Penny's boat, Charlie sacrificed of it all. Some people are willing to believe in Charlie's sacrifice. Some people are not. And Hurley takes that really, really personally. and. And as a result, we get to see the person with the highest emotional intelligent quotient for the week, Sawyer. Hey, buddy. I have come all the way around on Sawyer. I have to say, this scene really clinched it for me because he is the one who asks Hurley how he's doing and if he needs anything. He's going to get the group to slow down so Hurley can keep up, even though Hurley insists that he doesn't need that. Sawyer has actually turned into somebody with an emotional connection to these people as much as he tries to pretend. And I don't know if it was killing the original Sawyer last season that did this for him or what, or if it's been sleeping with Kate or I don't know. All I know is, is that Sawyer 
is plugged in. He's invested in people now. Especially Hurley. Yes. I mean, Hurley is like, though, he, like... He doesn't call Hurley fat once this episode. No, he He calls doesn't. Locke crazy because yeah. he calls him Kurtz. Yeah, he does. He does. Can we talk about how well-read Sawyer is? He's so well-read. Yeah, I've come all the way around on Sawyer. That's that's all I'm going to say about that, was, that. That was fun to watch. I have to say, though, the scene where Hurley tells Claire and just, like, loses it while telling her. I mean, who is more sad, Hurley or Claire, in this scene? It is just so heartrending. You know, it really brings it home that Charlie had been accepted as a surrogate father for Aaron. And so, you know, the thing about it is, is like, who's taking it harder? I mean, Hurley, right? But we have that moment of thinking that Claire, and I'm like, but that's, he's not really, it's it's interesting how well that ended up being cemented by the end that you really are like, Aaron's father died. Well, no, he's not. Right. And Claire, but Claire goes with Hurley, which again, I think has to do with Charlie. Even though I'm sure Claire trusts Hurley, it has more to do with Charlie's death that she leaves to go with Hurley than it does, I think, with certainly more than it has to do with Locke, who is the de facto leader of that faction, even though, again, Hurley is the one who pulls people over. Right. And and one thing that this episode does in that moment, that is the same moment where we have the group split. And the way that this episode draws on what happened in the first three seasons is we have white hats and black hats, right? Jack is the white hat. Locke is the black hat. But, you know, it's interesting to think about who went with, with whom. You know, you at first Jack thinks that nobody's going to go with Locke because Locke is clearly the bad guy. And yet he's wrong. Right. And Jack actually tries to shoot Locke. I mean, if that gun had not been loaded, Locke would be dead. Right, so what this episode's trying to do really is defy this conventional white hat, black hat, good versus evil narrative. You know, we, we want to think that Jack, Juliet, and Kate are the good guys, but that's complicated by the fact that a lot of the people we also think are the good guys went with Locke. Now, Locke's still misbehaving. Right, exactly. I mean, and I also think that this tells us that Jack is not... Jack is not pure good anymore. He's not a white hat because he is now... Was he ever pure good? Well, no, but like he definitely had this persona of like the white hat sheriff type. He's a doctor. You know, he tries to do things the right way. He's the shepherd. But he's... He's the son of Christ. Right, but he's a killer now. Like he... And he says several times in this episode, if I see him again, I am going to kill him. And he tries to. That's not very Christian's son. Right. It's it's really interesting the way that Jack has evolved. And then, yeah, like you said, the way that some of these other people have evolved. Like Sawyer. Sawyer was definitely not a good person, but I think he's a better person now than he was at the beginning of the show. So, yeah, it is interesting to see who stays and who doesn't. I do find it fascinating that Rose tells Bernard, even though she has every intention of staying on the island because of her cancer, that she refuses to go anywhere with John Locke. You know, it's it's another thing that this episode shows is that Jack is far less interesting than Locke. You know, this oh, show yeah. this show definitely, you know, wants to explore why evil is so much more interesting than good. Which reminds me of a quote from Spaceballs. 
Now you know that evil will always triumph because good is dumb. <laughs> um, it's funny, Michael Emerson, who we're going to talk about a little bit here, currently stars on a show, Evil, that also stars Mike Coulter and is made by Robert and Michelle King that is an exploration of evil as well. But speaking of Ben, Punching Bag Ben. It, I, have a, I have a title for it. you. It's Punching Bag Ben and then Naomi who wouldn't die. Oh, my God. Ben gets so beat up by everyone in this episode. And frankly, I am here for it. He has had it coming since we were introduced to him. What was it? A season and a half ago? Oh, my God. Everybody gets a, to punch Ben in these two episodes. And it's great. But get, getting to the Naomi part of it, I this is the one misstep, I think, in these two episodes. I liked almost everything except for the Naomi storyline. It really felt like she was more of a plot point, especially since on this island, death is kind of like people could be dead. They could not be dead. They could get shot through the kidney, but their kidney's not there and everybody heals super quickly. And so it's like, is she dead? Is she not dead? That's all fine. But then they tried to get me to care about her in a flashback episode or flashback in the next episode. And it was just like, if she's dead, I can't care about this character. So it's like, I don't know. That to me was their one misstep was they tried to talk about this character like she meant something. So she wouldn't be, I guess, the girl in the refrigerator. But she is. Eh, So who cares? Yeah. No, I mean, you're right. But like. I don't care about this character. Exactly. Like, I, she's just, she is a plot point. She is not, like, a real character. But the opposite of a character who I don't care about, this episode ends with the introduction of one of my three favorite characters from the entire series, Daniel Faraday. And you had to explain to me who Daniel Faraday was, who this is a reference to. He's a physicist. Yeah. He, he invented the Faraday cage. Right. So, yeah, he's he seems very befuddled at the end of this episode. And, of course, we get to know him maybe a little bit more in the next episode. He seems just as befuddled in the next episode. Well, what's interesting is, so, this show is obsessed with different kinds of philosophy, right? We have Jack, the son of Christian Shepherd, you know, that kind of Christian philosophy. We have John Locke, who is that very allegedly logical philosophy. Rational. Right. We have Desmond Hume, who is more of a, a humanist philosopher. You know, the, the squishy on the inside philosophy, right? You know, of course, Locke and Shepard's philosophies are a lot more, you know, I joke about Desmond being squishy on the inside with his philosophy, but that's in stark opposition to both Christian and the kind of Lockean philosophies, which both hide very, very, you know, Locke was a profound racist. He was a believer in, um, he was believer in, in race theory that posited that, that white people are superior. You know, we, we, we think about him as the father of our democracy, you know, with his philosophy and, and in many ways he is. But in the bad ways, too. Right. And that's the thing about John Locke, you know, but, you know, Christian Shepherd's son, Jack, is very, very hypocritical. Well, it's interesting, too, that you bring that up, because I don't think that even though Jack is the leader of one side and Locke is the leader of the other. 
not all it makes it very clear that not all the characters who stay or leave do so because of them. So like for an example, a lot of the people who go with Locke like Claire and Jin and Sun, I believe, right? Jin and Sun go with them. And Sawyer go because of Hurley. They don't go because of Locke. Right. Or they go because of Charlie. But interestingly enough, Kate and Juliet stay probably because of Jack, but Desmond stays. But it's not because of Jack. It's because he wants to see Penny again. He wants again. to see Pen Pen. And I'm not sure Saeed stays with Jack because of Jack. I think it's because Saeed is fundamentally opposed to Locke. And the, right. same, and the same also goes for Rose and Bernard, like I said earlier, because she's not going to go with... She doesn't want to leave the island. She doesn't want to stay with Jack, but she's not going to go with Locke either. So it is interesting that you put them in like these diametrically oppositional places... But the people who are with them aren't necessarily fully in alignment with those philosophies either. And so you talk about the diametric opposition. And Desmond Hume is a third point. Daniel Faraday is a fourth point. Because, you know, physics is really the intersection of science and philosophy. Because, you know, physics much more so than, than a lot of other science it's so difficult to prove. I mean, a, a central tenet of physics is that the more, the harder you try to look at something, the more you'll change it. So it always has to be theoretical in some way. It can never be fully proven. And so a very mild spoiler for you, and this is why he's one of my favorite characters, if Locke and Shepard are locked in this juxtapositional battle, it's super fun to watch Desmond and Daniel together. Yay! It's gonna, there is an episode, and those of you who have seen it, yes, that is one of my favorite episodes, and I'm so excited to be talking about it in a few weeks. Let's talk about the new team, right? So first we have uh, Daniel Faraday, played by Jeremy Davies, who, if you haven't seen Justified, which Tessa hasn't, Please go do that now. He's been in a lot of stuff, though. Like, I recognize oh, yeah. him. Jeremy Davies is great. What did you think? So in the second episode, we get introduced to these characters. What do you think about the physicist? So, like I said, he seems very befuddled. He seems very, like, eccentric, which I think a lot of these people are supposed to be, which we can get into here in a minute. We don't get much of him. We don't get much of an introduction of him in the flashback. We just get him crying when he's looking at the footage of the of the flight that they found supposedly in the ocean. And when asked why, he's like, I have no idea why I'm this emotional about it. That's all we get of him in the flashback. But we do get quite a bit of him in the present day on the island. And he's just like unsure of what to do. Like he wants to trust Jack. He doesn't have any problem with them. And you know, but he does have his gun and he's not going to tell them like why they're there. So he just seems very like uh, quirky. It really feels like there are two golden retrievers on the island now. Yeah. Yeah. He definitely has like <laughs> that feel about him. He seems very quirky, very eccentric, very much like an absent minded research technician. So unlike Daniel Faraday, we have the grumpy ghostbuster. Miles Strom, played by Ken Lung. Are we, how do we feel about? 
he's hilarious. I mean, if you're going to have like a quirky, absent-minded scientist type, you really need to balance them out with the paranoid, like, spiritualist. Yeah, paranoid spiritualist. That's what I'm going to go with. That is what this character is. Because, yeah, he's got that Ghostbusters thing in the flashback. He says that he can tell what happened with Naomi just by, like, looking at her body. So, yeah, I think that what we're doing here with a lot of these new characters is we are stretching beyond the binary philosophies and we're starting to put our we're starting to look at the island through new frameworks and some of these frameworks are not bound by philosophy or science so like you said physics occupies this fuzzy area spiritualism in this way occupies a fuzzy area so yeah and i have obviously more to say about the other characters but it's interesting that these two that we get right off the bat have very different ways of viewing the world. And the way that Strom interacts with Jack is hilarious because he is not intimidated by Jack at all. And in third position, we have the anthropologist played by Rebecca Mater, Charlotte Staples Lewis. That's right, kids. C.S. Lewis has entered the chat. You didn't know this before I watched it with you. I was not paying attention. I had yeah. a lot going on in my life, well, Tessa. No, it was very funny because I was like, Staples Lewis, it's C.S. Lewis. And you were like, his middle name was Staples? You know, folks out there who are going to become parents one day, don't be dicks. Don't name your kid Clive Staples Lewis. Come on. Seriously. But yeah, this again, again, it's stretching us... It, C.S. Lewis, fantasy writer, right? Renowned literary expert on especially medieval lit. So, yeah, I think that we're starting to get more literary and more... I mean, she's like an anthropologist, so it's not quite the same field of specialty, but we're starting to get more into understandings that are perhaps outside of what we've seen previously. Other than that, I don't have a lot to say about her. Her main point... the. The main point of her character in this is to be like, what? Why would you not want to go find the others? And to get shot by Ben. And I will also note here, I'm going to put, a, I'm gonna put a, a pin right here and say that I think this episode has our first Empire Strikes Back reference. When she gets uh, tangled in the parachute, she's hanging down backwards and she... You know, is trying to reach up around her waist, just like Luke tried to reach up to get, yeah. And the camera angles are very much Empire, like where you think she's right up at first and then the camera slowly pans around so you realize she's upside down. It's fun watching it the second time around, knowing what's in their heads. Unfortunately, sometimes the bits are farther into their heads than how the show actually went. <laughs> and so, the fourth person... In our Fab Four, it was five, but Naomi's dead. The fourth person in our Fab Four, played by Jeff Fahey, is Frank. Best tribute video on YouTube, Lapidus. Tessa doesn't get that joke, but she will one day. I probably will. Again, he's the drunk pilot. He seems more like a trope than anything else at this point. He is the one who knows the original pilot of the plane. And so knows that the the footage that they have, the artifact that they found in the ocean is not real because he doesn't have his wedding ring on. So that's interesting. 
It's also interesting that he managed to land the helicopter, considering the fact that we know that the island is notoriously hostile towards technology. And it is also interesting that he is the one who realizes that Juliet was not actually on the original plane because he has the entire flight manifest memorized. Again, it seems more like he's a plot point at this point, but it'll be interesting to get to know him as a character. I feel like he has a lot of potential. All right. Before we talk about the is this fake news or not, I have some questions for you. What is up with taller Ghost Walt? (laughs) We saw this at the end of the last episode, but that is who Locke credits with his new... His new mission? Walt. But taller. Oh, oh, taller ghost Walt. Uh, Sawyer, even though he does have his newfound emotional maturity, is still able to do the sarcasm real well. Okay, I don't care how emotionally mature you are. If somebody says Walt came back and the only thing about him (laughs) that was notable that he was taller, that is the appropriate thing to say regardless of your emotional intelligence level. That's true. But I also feel like this is the show trying to be really cute and it kind of works because it's funny, but you know, he was getting older and so that's why they wrote him off the show, which I think was a mistake. I think they could have recast or just had like, you know, kids grow. So if the internet is to be believed and, you know, this show is significant because it redefined the pe- the way that people talked about TV on the internet. When you read, you know, facts or, you know, just random trivia, I, I take things like Lostpedia to be pretty, uh, pretty solid for the most part. So the, uh, the, 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 I believe this one's actually from Wikipedia, not from Lostpedia. Allegedly, Hurley, when he goes into the house, sees himself which would have been a second Empire Strikes Back reference. It would have been the cave on Dagobah. But they said, that's a little too scary. That would have been pretty scary. The would, network said that was a little too scary. Would this technically be our third Empire reference, though, because we got Billy D. Williams before? Uh, who's counting? I'm just saying. Okay. You mentioned him earlier. So I want to make sure that you have a chance to talk about your favorite, your favorite character, the Sensate, the Manic Pixie Dream Saeed. He's still Manic Pixie Dream engineering stuff together. Somehow he knows how to fix a helicopter or at least how to check one out to know that it was flying. And he says it with such certainty too. Like. Jack is like, will it fly? And Saeed is like, oh, definitely. (laughs) Like, he knows what he's talking about. It's the tank top that gives him power. Seriously. Like, he, they just. wearing a real shirt. It'd be over. (laughs) They established at some point that he knew some stuff about technology. And now anytime anything involving (laughs) technology happens, he magically knows how to fix or to change that technology. Would have been nice if you'd given me a heads up. Well, I winked at you. I winked at you. Yeah, and like as soon as that happened, I was like, Saeed's in the woods. He's pointing a gun at them. It's <laughs> Deus Ex Mot. It's Deus Ex Saeed. It's, we have a good time. I, I, Saeed is such a great character. And it's, you can see, I mean, there's not a lot with him in this, but you can see like his old roots. Like He is the one who's like questioning them. Like 
he perhaps doesn't believe in Charlie's sacrifice or he doesn't believe that Charlie understood maybe what Penny was saying because he stayed with Jack. But he's just a suspicious person. Like, I, in the recent episode of Nanny Og's Book Club, there's a line from Feet of Clay where it's like, there's no groups that where you can just go and stand up and say, hi, I'm Sam. I'm a suspicious bastard. That's Saeed. Like, he's just, he's suspicious of everybody and everything. And so you can see that, like, coming out when he's, like, questioning Daniel and Strom. All right. The big mystery, if you will, in these episodes. Who's boat is this first do you have a guess no okay the abaddon guy is the person who sent them we know that all right so the discussion is what is the main mission is this a rescue crew or is this a crew here to do something else by the end of the second episode we know this is not a rescue mission because they believed that everyone on that flight was dead except for Lapidus. Right? But this is not a rescue mission. This is a mission to do what? To get Ben. That's right. And the Strom- man in this picture. And Strom seems real angry about it, like real intense about it. Right. Tessa, you love this picture. This picture looks like it was taken in a fellowship hall after a Sunday school service while he's standing in front of the copier with a cup of coffee. That is, it's such a specific lighting and vibe to this picture i don't know like they couldn't get any better pictures of him was this the one time that their spies could get a picture of him do you have any handle you know you you, you're pretty sure this island wants somebody to do something and at one time it was ben but it's not anymore that's solid you don't know what it wants you will by the end of the show if indeed you are correct but do we have any idea why Ben is wanted? You know, I don't, other than the fact that he just ev- makes everybody hate him, which is valid. I but. don't have to know why Ben is wanted to know that he pissed somebody off. Like that's the thing about Ben is that even now, even as he's being kept alive by Locke, who Sawyer tries to kill him in this episode, Locke is going to kill him in this episode, but he still manages to eke himself out alive by the end. He is such a master manipulator. I mean, Juliet says it in the episode, Ben lies, except for when he doesn't. Like, it is impossible to tell when he is telling the truth or when he is deploying the truth in order to get the result that he wants. Truth from a certain point of view, right? And so, who knows? He probably fucked with them. Sorry, this is a clean episode. He probably messed with whoever sent this boat the same way that he messed with Jack. And... We saw how Jack took that. As promised, time to play a game. Are they all dead? Now, if Flight 815 crashed, which Lapidus is pretty sure it didn't, then everyone is dead, but not Ben and not Juliet. But Ben is with some of them and Juliet is with the others. We see Jack in the real world. We've seen Juliet in the real world. We've seen Hurley in the real world. We've seen Hurley interact with somebody who has interacted with this new crew who are, I guess, dead too? 
if we know that the end is they are dead, are they dead? I don't know. Like, like I've said before, I know the ending of this, although I don't know exactly how it happens. At this point, if I had been watching this and I didn't know the ending of it, I would say they are not dead. Thank you, Tessa. I mean, it would. <laughs> there are signs that they could be dead. Like, for example, it would make sense that someone who is dead would be able to see Charlie, who is also dead. That right, makes sense sure. to me. Yeah. But, and it would make sense that, because there's that scene where Locke is like, he shot me, and then pulls up his shirt, and he's like, went in here, came out here. If I still had a kidney, I'd be dead. That would make sense if he was actually dead. But, I don't know, just like the whole conspiracy of like, oh, where's his ring? And like, I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me that they'd be dead. And then like the whole like, they're back in the real world, but they're actually on the island. Like, that just seems too complicated for them to just be dead. Right. And and you're beginning, and, and the thing about it is my greatest fear is that we come to the end of this series and I'm not mad anymore. Like, I, I feel like my anger is a righteous anger. I feel like anybody who thinks that was a good finale, like our other co-host, is wrong. So, of course, my greatest fear is they are not wrong. It was me, in fact, who was wrong. But you are seeing at this point in the show how deflating it is to play all these games for them to come back at the end and go, oh, but they were dead. Yeah, it just, it feels a little cheap to have, like, to fake it out like that, and then to have that actually be the answer. I will say that, again, I'm willing to be convinced. I'm open to it. But for right now, it does seem a little weird that they would just, like, fake it out like that. Final thoughts on these first two episodes. In case you haven't noticed, we are, we have switched from four episodes all the way down to two. I guess my final thoughts are Team Jack and Kate are looking pretty good right now. Yikes. All right, that's it for today. Join us next week when we will be talking about The Economist and Eggtown. You can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9, and you can find Tessa at Suela Tessa. Until next time, I'm a physicist. Well, I guess you could call me a physicist. I don't really like being pigeonholed Dan, into I one. Dan, I swear to God, you say one more word and I'm going to break your fingers.